It's so good to um, be with you um, to share God's word. It's a, a bit intimidating, to be honest, this, this passage. I've just been challenged so much in preparing this. Um, so, yeah, I just echo James's prayers. Of uh, I just pray that really, that as I speak, that... Um, yeah, that it would be God that speaks through me. And it was just, it's the God that has his arms open wide, you know? It's that God. Because there's a lot in this. There's a lot about sin, about repentance. But I've titled this Rebuilding a Godly Community. So I'm going to start with something a bit lighthearted. Let's try that. Um, yeah, I guess in times of just, um, in my leisure time, I uh, do watch a few documentaries, and um, one of my favourite things that I love to watch is really sporting documentaries. Now, for those football fans in the room, it has been um, an epic week. I'm not going to go there. I know I usually it's usually Tony with the football illustrations, but it's been exciting. But for me, I've been watching a whole bunch of sporting documentaries um, that really take you behind the scenes. So there's a whole series called All or Nothing. They've followed various clubs, um, you know, including my own. And it's just been fascinating. The basketball documentary, I don't know if you've seen The Last Dance, which tells the story of Michael Jordan and his rise. And that's kind of my generation. So it's a bit of nostalgia as well as that. But the thing about it is, this going behind the scenes helps us see different perspectives. Because often, and some of these documentaries, they're, they're profiling the amazing teams, right? The greats. But what we see in these documentaries is, is the perspectives from all the different fronts. We see the perspectives of the fans, the management, even the people that, you know, the guy that's changing the towels in the locker room, you know? We see the perspective of the players and the coach and even their families. Even for the winning teams, what we're seeing are the challenges, the pressures, the relationships, the tensions, the egos, the breakdowns, all within the victories. There's a quote that I just want us to, um, to think about, um, and it's been, it, I've been thinking about this quite a bit in different um, contexts, but it says, the single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. And I think for us, Nehemiah, this, is, this can be often, you know, a bit of a risk for us when we read Nehemiah's, as we do today. It's all about Nehemiah, the hero. Great. Yeah, he came, he had opposition, but he, he you, know, you know, he went over. And I know that, yeah, spoiler, not spoiler, it might not end as well. But, um, you know, it's too often to go, yes, what it's about, Nehemiah's about rebuilding of the walls. And often when people say, you know, I've asked, they've asked me, oh, so what are you preaching on? I'm like, Nehemiah 5. It's like, oh, what happened there? <laughs> well, Nehemiah 5, um, you know, I think in, a, in an interesting way, this quote is often used and it's been used around the whole racial justice kind of thing of, you know, actually, if we're only hearing um, perspectives from one race, what does that mean? Um, and I just thought, actually, because this quote came into mind, but this passage is talking about injustice too. And it's easy to stereotype the oppressed and the oppressors. But this chapter really gives us access behind the action. Behind the action of the rebuilding of the walls, not so much behind the closed doors, but behind the broken walls. 
And it focuses on, it zooms in on what God is actually doing. And it's not just about the walls. God is rebuilding his people, his community. So just to give you a bit of a context for those of you that haven't been tracking us or we've been in a series of Nehemiah, um, big picture, you've got Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Here's about the distressing state of Jerusalem's walls and gates. He is moved with compassion and burden for the city's brokenness and he turns to God in prayer. And God makes a way for Nehemiah and with the king's support, he receives permission to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And you know, chapter three, which Luke preached on a few weeks back, through strategic leadership and gifts, he engages and mobilizes God's people in the restoration work. And then last week, Tony was preaching on experiencing the external opposition and the rallying together to persevere in the face of adversity. But in chapter five, what we're finding is we're zooming in to find ourselves in a social and economic crisis. You see, the construction work, um, where, you know, people were kind of busy doing that job. Life still went on. There was still a business as usual. So who was tending to the land? The toll of the toil of re- rebuilding the wall um, affected everyone because life doesn't stand still. There were serious problems of poverty and food shortages as manpower is diverted from the work of agriculture to concentrate on the buildings. And too often, when we read a story, we can put ourselves automatically in one role. I'm not sure who you've been kind of thinking that you are. Is it Nehemiah? I don't know, maybe. But looking at this part of the historical narrative, what I'm going to do today is, um, yeah, together, we want to just look through the four different perspectives on the handling of this crisis situation. So if we go to the first perspective, the men and their wives... In verse 1, it says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. It's a short little sentence there, but the word outcry is pretty big here. It is, it's got the echoes of the Exodus. Do you remember the time where God's people were oppressed by the Egyptians and they were slaves and they were crying out to God? Their cries that reached, reached the Lord. Part of the community... Um, at this time was experiencing this kind of injustice. These were the outcries, the cries of the people under oppression. When we talk about people, it's men and their wives. They were whole families that were affected. It wasn't just, you know, um, an individual problem here and there. This is a community issue. And I think, you know, one of the most alarming things with this is it's not just the problem out there. The problem is inside. It's exploitation within the family. The use of the term fellow Jews shows the strong bond among the Israelites. And I know like as church, we can often talk about, right, as we're doing God's work, you know, there's so much attack um, of the enemy, the attack of the culture, the attack of those that oppose Christianity, those that don't like what we're doing, the fact that it's really difficult to do ministry today in this whatever you want to term it, kind of stage of world we are in. But often, one of the biggest threats to God's work in his people is his people, or rather the sin, the devil in his people. When God's people are not living according to God's ways, 
That is one of the biggest threats. And for us today, that means when the people of God are not doing, not just hearing, but not doing the words of Jesus. It's a lot. But at this time, what we're also seeing are real class divides. There, you know, the return of the Israelites are not, it wasn't just this kind of, we're all one class or one level of wealth. There were more affluent returnees. Nehemiah was one of them. There were stratums of society, even through the oppression. There were those that were living a bit more comfortably than others. And in this, as we see, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. That's something that happens to us today. We're, in, we're all in a cost of living crisis. It's affecting each of us differently. According to this think tank, Resolution Foundation, the poorest are hit the hardest with spiraling inflation affecting the cost of food and energy. While the richest 5%, despite their income decreasing, because everyone's income's decreasing, will see their overall income increase due to savings and investment. This is, nothing, this is nothing new. But what was actually going on here? If we look at verse 2 to 5, we hear the, it just exposes the true cost of the war. And there are actually a few different complaints. And in some ways, they mirror the different um, vulnerabilities or the different levels of poverty that this crisis was affecting. On one hand, you've got some people that were really suffering from the famine, I don't know what your experience of famine is. Mine growing up in the 80s was just seeing these pictures of people that were dying of malnutrition in Africa. And then when I worked at the mayor's office, realizing that in London we have one of the highest child poverty rates. Child hunger is massive, even in this country. Blows my mind. But these are people that were suffering from the famine, a bad harvest. Don't know if you're into farming or anything like that. We've got relatives that are farmers. Everything's done by the weather, right? So it, not only must they have been rebuilding them, if, if you've got a bad weather, weather year, there's no crops. So these people weren't accessing enough food. There, were, there was malnutrition going on, starvation. There were people that maybe had property and they were having to mortgage them so that they would have enough food. You know, giving up their property, giving up their vineyards, giving up what, what can we give so that we can actually feed our families. I'm sure there are families that we know that are in a similar situation. What do we need to cut? What can we cut to survive? And then there were those who were struggling to live under the Persian rule where there was an, a real estate tax had been imposed. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't realise. It is actually King Darius. <laughs> it's not you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not going to forget that one, eh? King Darius levied a tax on the crops, yielded in fields. But that tax, seriously, it hit, hit families hard. And it was a custom at the time in Israel and other parts of the ancient world for parents to sell their children into slavery to enable them to meet their material needs. And that was with the hope of redeeming them at a later date. This was tough. People were being exploited. And what we're finding here is the rich are lending, but also charging interest in a way that was crippling people by debt. It's a real period of desperation. 
I can't imagine there ever being a time where exploiting the poor would be good. But the fact is, this was not only a big issue, it was a big issue because they were God's people. It was a big issue for them as the community. Because God calls his people to live distinctly, no, distinctively, especially concerning the poor. And this was against God's law. So in those times, they had laws saying an Israelite loan um, should be considered a charity. So it was done to help someone that was needy, but it wasn't done to to gain interest from it because charging interest was forbidden. So we've got this verse from Leviticus, um, which says, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. God's laws reflect his character in his heart. He's, ex- he's opposed to exploitation of people, those that, he is, that are made in his image. He cares for the poor. There are so many verses in the Bible that refer to to God as the defender of the poor and the weak. In Deuteronomy, you've got, For the Lord your God is God of of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God is on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. And this was so different to the ancient cultures of the world where the power of gods were often channeled through the elite of society. You know, the kings, the leaders, the priests, not the outcasts. Our God is not like any other God. There is none like him. And we see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus who left all the privileges of heaven to come to earth, to be born in humble circumstances. And where does he spend most of his time? He spends most of his ministry with the poor, the outsider, the fatherless, widows, orphans, those considered least in society. He came alongside them in their brokenness and in their vulnerability. We sang it earlier. For those of you sitting here feeling broken, feeling vulnerable, feeling powerless, you might not be, you might not be suffering from, that, from economic famines, but it's, the, it's the, the vulnerable, it's those that are lonely, on their own, feeling right at the bottom, right in the pit. Do you know your God? Do you know he is there for you? That he loves you? That he cares for you? He is for you. His arms are open wide for you. Do you know him as your defender? The law not only protected the poor, but also it does protect the wealthy. It protects them from being tempted um, to sin. It protects them from their greed, for selfishness, for for not following the ways of God. The ways of health, a good life. It gave them a way to live well together as one community, as God's people. And that was whether they were rich or poor. You see, God calls his people in a way that sets them apart. He calls them to live distinctively in ways that reflect his character. And so by creating this culture of social justice for the poor and vulnerable, the glory of God's character could be revealed. 
And that fulfills the purpose of God's people to live as the light to the nations. And that's relevant for us as church today. We are still called to be a light to the world. The thing is, justice is defined by God's character. It is his character that determines what's right and wrong. And we can only understand real justice through our God who is just. God's justice goes beyond just punishing someone. It's not just about retribution for those who do wrong, but redemption and restoration of those who do wrong. Justice is not only a strong concern for the poor, but the biblical idea of justice involves living righteous lives in right relationship with others. Last week, we were just up here on the, on, on the stage here, just dedicating the kids, and it was just that reminder, we're, we have got responsibility to teach them God's ways. And when you think about God's, God's justice, it is not like any justice of this world. So we're, you know, we're not just talking about, you know, the, the way, um, you know, our sexual ethics or things like that. It's, it's about the way that we are actually in right relationship with it. All of that matters. All of it matters to God. But it's so key, isn't it, that we know, we understand what biblical justice means. Today, charging interest is a fact of life. It's, it's not wrong. It's legal. It's not wrong in the eyes of our society. But just because something is legal and normal doesn't make it right in God's economy. God calls us to be holy and set apart. And it will affect every decision we make, no matter how big and small, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. It means for me, with, you know, trying to start this business, I'm, I'm thinking about what does it mean to pay people fairly, which will mean less profit, leaving us with less overall. It means ensuring that children have the same opportunities regardless of circumstances they're brought up in. The thing is, God's call refers to a whole way of life. Living well in the eyes of God does not just refer to our Sunday worship, our prayers and our quiet time, but the whole of our lives. And in this case, he's referring specifically to how we use money. And I often think it can be so easy for us to come in here and there's that kind of, you know, the story of like you've had an absolute raging row outside and then you come into church and you're all holier than thou. <laughs> and we can sing the truth and it can, you know, we can look all right. But God's concerned about the row that you had five minutes before coming into church, just trying to get everyone here. <laughs> how we treat one another matters and it's especially how we treat the poor. In fact, I'd say the concern for the poor is a mark for God's faithful people. It isn't just about me and God and our relationship and if I'm connected with him. It's about how he cares about everything we do. So let's be holy and faithful in our public life too. And I've just had like, lots of questions about this. I mean, I know that speaking to a, a church like THCC, we have got a lot of people out there that have a real concern for the poor. People that are working in roles that have on the front line, directly serving the poor. But for all of us, what are the ways we are mistreating others badly? Are we concerned about the vulnerable and the lonely? Are our relationships with each other glorifying God? 
it's been personally convicting because I don't go out my way to treat people poorly. Sorry if I'm repenting now to everyone if I have. But, but in some ways, am I neglecting to treat others well? Let us encourage each other by reminding each other of God's character that shows us his ways and his heart for us to live in a way that glorifies him. Let us be the people of God who are doing and living the word of Jesus. As God calls his people to live distinctively, especially concerning the poor. But the second perspective I want to to, to come round to is Nehemiah. In verse 6 it says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. It shows Nehemiah's reaction to injustice and anger. I think when I read this verse, I think one of the things that really struck me is that Nehemiah heard. He heard their outcry. He heard the voices of the poor and it made him angry. I mean, he was leading a big building project, you know, yet he was still in touch with people (laughs) to the point where he was hearing their cries. Are we even hearing the cries? On one hand, it's really easy for us to be overwhelmed, isn't it, with the amount of injustice in society today, to block our ears to the most vulnerable in society. You know, even in this borough, you know, it's almost like there are parallel lives going on with the rich and the poor, or even, you know, just the more well-off, or, you know, poor in different ways, right? How are we living our lives in a way um, that, that, that actually feels? Because that's, that's the point, right? Nehemiah feels it. It angers him. It's a righteous anger. It's easy to live in our own silos, not experiencing anything or to turn our eyes away, whether on purpose or unintentionally. But how do we get to the point where we're really angered, we're really feeling it? But this was a verse for me as well. Nehemiah pondered. (laughs) He actually pondered. He prays, he considers, he didn't rush into action. This was something that he took away. But he does deal with it. He addresses the issue to end exploitation of the weak. And so, as James read so brilliantly, he says, you're charging your own people interest. He calls it out. He points out the irony of the fact that the fellow brothers are being redeemed from exile only to be sold in slavery by their own brothers. If you see in verse 8, there's, you know, you're sold to Gentiles, you're selling your own people, and they're sold back to us. Part of the reason why God's people had been taken into captivity in Babylon was because they had abandoned the ways of God. And here they are trying to rebuild Jerusalem and their community, and yet they are at risk of returning to the same old broken patterns. don't know about you, but I find that's often something that challenges me. It's so easy to slip into bad old ways. It's no wonder Nehemiah was so angry. It was threatening their very mission. So in verse 9 it says, So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? You see, God's heart for the poor and our fear of God leads us to confront 
injustice and call people back to God. But what is fear of, the God, fear of God? Fear of God here is a motivation for what they do. What does it mean to fear God? It's not a being scared of God, but this is a fear of reverence and awe and wonder of who he is and his greatness. It's, it's almost a posture and it's important to know that God is our loving heavenly father, but he's also the awesome one. He is great. He's all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, but caring, loving, and gentle. The fear of God gives us an attitude of humility, recognizing that we are finite beings in the presence of an infinite and perfect God. The fear of God gives us an awareness of God. It gives us accountability for our thoughts, words, and actions. It acknowledges that God is the ultimate judge, not us, who will hold us responsible for our choices. And that recognition encourages us to live in a manner that is pleasing to God and to make choices that align with his values. And we can see here there is a direct relationship between the fear of God and how we treat people. So how much you care about others depends on how much you fear the Lord. It comes down to whether you do fear the Lord. So what parts of our lives are not fully surrendered to our awesome God and living in the way that please him? And how does that affect others? It's not just sin and confession of sin for our own sake, but it affects our community. And Nehemiah is calling this out. He is calling people back to God and his ways and is challenging them where they are not doing so. This is an interesting verse, isn't it? In verse 10, it says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. It shows that Nehemiah, like we were talking about, is probably one of the more wealthier ones. They're also implicated. He himself is presented with a moral challenge. Now, some of the commentators are split on this, whether he's just part of the problem and needs to change, or whether he's lending money but not charging interest. But either way, he says, let us stop charging interest. You see, the solution is Nehemiah addresses the issue and he finds a way to equalize the economic levels among the people. So everything has to be returned and interest was also returned. And this is pretty incredible. It goes beyond even the provision for debt release like years of Jubilee because this is done immediately. So God's heart for the poor and our fear of God leads us to confront justice and call people back to God. Nehemiah is a perfect example, it's a good example of this. Perfect. How can we be those that confront injustice today? How are we those that call people back to God's ways in our life groups, in our friendships, in our families? What's stopping us from challenging injustice? How do we fear God so much that we aren't afraid to confront it? And it's often easy, isn't it? Because you know, living in the society, we don't necessarily speak into people's lives to that degree to point out where, they, where we see it wrong. We might not even know them enough, even in our own church, to actually know of, of ways that people aren't living rightly. So how can we point this out? When reflecting on this, I was thinking, this is probably one of the challenges for me. I, I don't want to come all like, oh, you're doing this wrong. 
especially in Nehemiah's case. I mean, he might have had a hand in doing something wrong at the same time. But, you know, on one hand, it's like you sound so righteous telling someone off. But this is what we're called to do. If our fear of God is more than the fear of man, then this is what we're called to do. We're called to confront it. So perspective number three, the fellow Jews, the nobles and officials. Now, it's easy for us to judge oppressors, isn't it? But I was thinking about this. In our house, we've got something called hero to zero. Ian goes constantly from hero to zero to hero to zero. (laughs) He's going through periods of, yeah, you're the best husband, best father in the world, to what? And in this, it kind of reminds me of this, right? This is one of those moments where the heroes of chapter four, do you remember chapter four? It it was only one last week, wasn't it? Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out and we're wide. And, you know, these are the people that were fighting. And was it one-handed? Because they had, yeah, and they were building a wall. They're like really tough and they're really doing such great work. And then they're also the same people that are exploiting the poor. Oppressing their own people. It's the beauty of seeing the perspectives of, you know, all of, the, all of these things. That people can, we can be both, hero and zero. The nobles and officials are the powerful ones in the community. And they were also experiencing pressure. I doubt a famine would only be like, oh, the weather just affects these fields and not these fields. But the difference was they were taking advantage of the difficult situation to exploit their own brothers and sisters. But it does make me think, right living is hard in stressful times, isn't that? I don't know about you, but I know I am more prone to sin when I am under pressure and when I'm going through hardships. Because it's a real test of our hearts. We're more likely to turn to our own ways rather than God's ways. Whether that be stress, tiredness, busyness, I'm more likely to make more self-centered decisions than God-centered decisions at that time. How about you? When do you find it hardest to be most like Jesus? I think it's easy to be generous when we have a lot. It's really hard when we feel under pressure. But the thing that strikes me with this is, do you see their reaction Do you see their reaction when it gets called out? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. How do you feel when someone points out the wrong in you? Is there ever a temptation to deny it, to deflect it, to excuse it? But they kept quiet because they could not find anything to say. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah pointed out their sin and they could not deny it. They were convicted, so they could not excuse it or deflect it. And when they were asked to give back um, the fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, all of those things, immediately they do and they obey. There is genuine repentance, a genuine 180 degree turn from oppressing to Not just stopping, but giving them back everything. It was addressing their hearts. Their hearts, which had turned from God, was returning back. And it's funny about thinking about repentance as we were kind of doing communion. I used to always think, whenever we did communion, uh, 
this is a bit of an honest moment. <laughs> I'd be like, there'd be this liturgy in the church that I, I, I went to, and it'd just be about confessing your sins. And then when, he, when they said that bit, I was like, oh, have I done wrong this week? Oh, I didn't, didn't argue with anyone, didn't do anything, didn't kill anyone, didn't, you know, and I was just like, we, we kind of struggled <laughs> to, to see what I could confess that, that week. So I'm looking at you. I don't know if I want some sort of affirmation because it's not that, no. But it was just like, actually, well, it was probably the sin of pride that was really getting me there. But, you know, to actually have this conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit that really turns you around. I've been in other communions where it was various moments in my life where I've just felt that overpowering conviction. And you sit in it, don't you? You sit in that conviction and then you look up, as Stephen was saying, as Annie was saying, you look up. And the pure release of knowing that Jesus died on the cross for that, the freedom of that is overwhelming. The gift of genuine repentance allows us to live fully in the freedom of Christ. And I call it a gift because... I think for some of us here, we might not realize that we have it available to us. This is for sinners across the board. It's for oppressors, even oppressors. But any time we think, how can I do what's best for me? That's when we, we know we need to be brought back. We need to, we need to bring back to what, is, what are the ways of God. And when we know and we accept the good news of the gospel, the news that Jesus came to die for all of our sins, past, present and future, because his death on the cross takes the punishment for everything. And like, we all know this, we hear it, we've heard it several times today. It takes our punishment and judgments for all our wrongs. All those times when we've chosen to go our ways above God's ways at the expense of others. We have repentance we can come to the cross, we can repent of our sins, not just acknowledge them, but turning away from them. And we can be forgiven. We can live in this freedom. Let us do that. We don't need to go around carrying the burdens of our wrongs. We can live freely. Our Savior died for us and it frees us. And it's great news for everyone. Jesus died for all. And the great thing about this, and we, you know, we were singing earlier, we can do this today. In this story, it was immediate. It doesn't have to wait. So if there is anything that you are in need of repenting of, let me encourage you as, you know, after I, after I finish speaking, like come up to the front during the music and we, and, and we will pray for you. There'll be a few of us that are here to pray for you. Do take advantage of this gift. Are we really receiving the gift of being able to repent and be forgiven? And finally, the final perspective is the whole assembly. Now, I've included this because often, I think the crowd often just get, as a bit of a side note, but there'll be a lot of us that won't necessarily be, um, you know, when we're facing this injustice in the community, it might not affect us so directly. We're just, we're just part of it. But this, this verse, just the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. You see, injustice faced in the community affects the whole community. 
Maybe you, there were people there that were neither rich nor poor, but they were all accountable to the sins within the community. And it's really hard to think about this as in our individualistic culture. What you do matters to me and affects me and it affects your brothers and sisters. Everyone in the whole assembly took it upon themselves, um, the terms of Nehemiah's curse. But Nehemiah's actions lead to reconciliation and restoration within the community. God's grace and forgiveness allows for reconciliation between the oppressor and the oppressed in the community. And that amen, I just imagine, it, it sounds like great, doesn't it? Amen, and we're all cool. But I imagine that was probably the start, the very start of the reconciliation process. Can you imagine it? You've been oppressed by your brothers and sisters. You've forgiven. They've given you their stuff back. But, you know, these things must, be, must have been a process. It can't have been easy for to come together and say amen and worship and praise. But what does that look like in our community? What does the amen and praising together mean if we're not reconciled as a family, a restored people? What does it look like in the day-to-day basis for us? Through the brokenness, the tears, the frustrations, maybe just the niggles. How are we living out the grace of God through reconciled relationships of our family? Who here do I need to seek forgiveness for? And who do I need to forgive? We're called to have a ministry of reconciliation. Paul in Corinthians, uh, the second Corinthians, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Are we neglecting the work of reconciliation at the expense of not rocking the boat or avoiding conflict? Because to be honest, that will only lead to superficial unity. And unity affects the mission. It affects our mission. It affects our mission to live as a covenantal people of God, signposting others to the future kingdom. It affects our witness. So what are the things that are potentially affecting our unity? As we form at the moment, we're at a stage where we've got lots of people coming in, newly joined within this year even. How are we knowing each other? How are we united? What's the glue like? before we even get to the point of, you know, challenging, (laughs) rocking the boat, being able to speak truth and love. But God's grace and forgiveness allows for reconciliation in the community. And I think the thing is, it's we are missing something if we don't, if we're not looking for the power of reconciliation and the gospel at work. And to be honest, I was really struggling because I was trying to find examples of where I saw that in my life anywhere and it was hard so maybe I've got a lot of work to do (laughs) in terms of reconciliation I don't have those glorious stories of yes I've got a restored relationship here yet my family in our church and our friends you know all sorts but we see the power of reconciliation and forgiveness don't we we see it where you know and it takes time it takes time when you see nations at war with each other and forgiving and reconciling with each other. I think the thing that, that came to my mind was when you see just 
parents that have suffered a loss of a child and are forgiving their perpetrator, the person that murdered them or something. You know, it's like that forgiveness, that power is so amazing to see. And it's only with the grace of God. So I'm just going to conclude there. Just want to remind us of those four perspectives that show us four different things. God causes people to live distinctly, especially concerning the poor. God's heart for the poor and our fear of God leads to confront injustice and call people back to God. And the gift of genuine repentance allows us to live fully in the freedom of Christ. God's grace and forgiveness allows for reconciliation between the oppressor and the oppressed in the community. This is a totally radical, different way of life. And all of it is possible because of God's grace. God's amazing grace. And so I want us to be able to receive these gifts. So as the band comes up, I'm just going to pray. I want us to pray um, for our hearts. I'm taking these words from Psalm 139. Search us, God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Father God, we thank you that because of Jesus, he has made a way. He has made a way for us to be reconciled with us, to be reconciled with each other. Father, I pray for each of us that our fear of God, our awe and our wonder of you would overwhelm us afresh to the point where we are those that live ways, live our lives that, in a way that pleases you. Live our lives that is for the benefit of all. Father, we pray that you would help us to be your people, living in a way that does that. Father, we pray, we thank you as we see your heart for the poor, Lord. Father, break our hearts for the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, those that we're, we may, may have just turned our, our ears and our eyes away from. Help us to hear their cries. Help us, help them to know that they are not alone. And Father, ultimately, we pray that you continue your work in us to rebuild us as your people so that in all things you may be glorified and others will come to be pointed to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.